Today is April 4th, 2017, and you're listening to Episode 2 of A Pint of Law. I'm your host, Matthew Curtis, from the University of Notre Dame, inching up to the bar one gulp at a time. My guest today is Professor Stephen Yelderman, Associate Professor at the University of Notre Dame. We will be talking about his recent publication in the University of Chicago Law Review, Do Patent Challenges Increase Competition? Professor Yelderman holds an MS and BS in Electrical Engineering from Stanford University and graduated with high honors from the University of Chicago Law School. He clerked in the United States Court of Appeals for the obscure and uncontroversial Neil Gorsuch. Prior to joining Notre Dame, Professor Yelderman served in the Telecommunications and Media Section of the U.S. Department of Justice Antitrust Division. He also worked as a patent agent in Silicon Valley, representing Google, Apple, Cisco, and Honda's Humanoid Robotics Laboratory in the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Let's start with the basics. The founders provided Congress with the ability to promote the progress in useful arts by securing for authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. What was the economic rationale for the founders including the right to grant patents within the Constitution, and broadly, has that rationale borne out positive results? Well, this goes back to the traditional view for why we grant patents. And I say the traditional view because since then, there's been some elaboration by scholars, and the picture of why we have the patent system might be more complex than this. But the basic kind of original understanding of why we would have a patent system is that Inventions and novels are really expensive to produce up front, but really cheap to copy after that. And so if you don't provide some means for uh, restricting copying, uh, you might not get people who are willing to make that initial investment to go out and invent the light bulb or write the great American novel or or whatever it's going to be. Has that worked out? That's the million-dollar question that no one really knows the answer to. Um, We've had a patent system... um, you know, since the, the first Congress uh, under the, the, the U.S. Constitution. And, uh, and, and of course, there were, there were patents and, and copyrights even before uh, American independence. Um, but we don't really know empirically whether these uh, exclusive rights systems have done um, more harm than good in terms of their ability to create the incentives to invent and create that are the, the, the original reason uh, that we... Uh, have given for, for having them in the first place. Okay, I really thought that was going to be a toss-up. So, your article focuses on a set of structures designed to induce judicial review of patents for the sake of increasing market competition. You point out that the law has incorporated these incentives through both judicial and legislative acts. When did this start, and how have these incentives developed? I think the instinct that challenging patents, that having patent litigation uh, test the validity of, of patents and issue goes back a really long time. I mean, there's Supreme Court language back in far back as 1892 saying it's as important to the public that competition not be repressed by worthless patents as that the patents of really valuable inventions should be protected in a monopoly. So um, you have glimmers of this in the late 19th century. And then throughout the 20th century, 1944, uh, and, and, and through uh, the mid-century, lots of Supreme Court cases talking about how patents are monopolies, and it's important that we not have monopolies unless we really need to, uh, and uh, developing uh, cases that that encourage uh, affirmative challenging of patents validity, and then by the by the 1970s, um, this has taken the form of hard and fast rules, uh, and including uh, interventions to 
void otherwise enforceable contracts uh, and to take uh, other really dramatic jurisprudential steps to make it easier for people to get into court who want to who want to challenge patents. That sort of really kind of started up in the courts, and then in the 1980s. Um, the 1984 Hatch-Waxman Act, Congress uh, created a rewards mechanism as a kind of bounty to try to get people to, to challenge pharmaceutical patents in particular. And then uh, as recently as in 2011, the Leahy Smith America Invents Act, uh, Congress included to, uh, it, it continued to uh, expand the procedural mechanisms available to challenge patents. So the history here is over 120 years old, and it continues uh, to the present day. Great. You cite three conditions that must be met for patent challenges to increase competition. One, a challenged patent must confer market power. Two, a successful challenge must reduce market power. And three, that the patent must be timely. That's right. And uh, just to put a little bit of more gloss on this, the theory that patent challenges increase competition is the most commonly cited uh, public benefit for, uh, for, for these challenges. So the idea that if you have some patent monopoly and you can take it away, that's going to benefit consumers. That's why we have antitrust laws. Um, but it's not the only potential benefit. Um, it's the one that the court has talked about for the last 100 years or so. Um, so it's the one I focus on here. But there are other potential benefits we can talk about later if you want to, to patent challenges. For this article, I'm really setting them aside and just focusing on this, on this particular theory that courts have been telling us about that, that patent challenges can increase competition. Let's start out with the first. The basic assumption of patent theory is that patents confer monopoly profits. You point out that this is often not the case. Why is that? Well, I I, I get I'm not sure I say that it's often the case or often not the case. I guess the the, the least I can show is that it's not always the case. Uh, and in fact, courts for a long time assumed that uh, that every issued patent confers market power. With the Supreme Court itself in the 2000s, on the basis of a lot of evidence and av- uh, advocacy by the antitrust agencies, uh, reversed that presumption. No longer do we presume that issued patents confer market power. Now, if the theory for why we grant patents in the first place is we're going to reward inventors by giving them market power, you might ask, does this mean that the system's broken? And um, there's a little bit of a, uh, a lottery ticket effect going on here. Um, there's lots of patents out there that just never amount to anything. The vast majority of patents are, are never asserted. Most either are uh, of speculative technologies that never pan out, or it's a technology that ends up working out, uh, but the industry moves another way. It's actually really hard to come up with something completely new that works that turns out to be really valuable, and then ultimately has a widespread market acceptance. So when you think about all those gates an inventor has to clear, both to get patent protection and then to, to prevail in the marketplace, it's really the, I think most scholars think it's really the odd patent rather than the everyday patent uh, that turns out to confer that kind of market power. Great. You point out that, in many cases, a victory in a patent challenge will not reduce monopoly profits. Why is that? What are some qualities about industries that make challenges more likely to lead to com- competition within the market? Well, for, first we have the cases that, that didn't involve uh, that didn't involve forward-going uh, market power in the first place. So, uh, you know, some percentage of cases might not affect forward-going market power because it wasn't even at stake at all. But then you do have some patents that perhaps uh, do involve forward-going market power. 
but the remedy of a court in an individual patent case is just too small to have a to, to move the needle. Let me give you an example of that. So a lot of patent litigation take today takes place in the context of massive patent portfolios. I mean, think Apple and Samsung have been dragging it out for years now. They both have thousands of patents in their respective industries, and you know, in a, in, in an individual patent suit, you might have a handful of patents, maybe a dozen before the court. Maybe those patents confer market power, maybe they don't. Um, but taking them away doesn't necessarily make the market perfectly competitive. There's lots of redundant protection. And so you could have cases where you have a, a patent that confers market power, but it's not a but-force source of market power. So taking it away might not actually improve competition the way that, that people have typically assumed. Great. And are there some industries that are more likely to confer market power with a successful patent challenge? Right. So I, I think that there, there is an industry-specific difference here. And in some industries, making the end product involves a lot of uh, trade secrecy, a lot of know-how. There might be thousands of patents implicated by a device. might require extensive customer or supplier relationship networks, but other industries, and, and pharmaceuticals is kind of the best example of this, uh, the information to produce the drug might be public knowledge, uh, it might be uh, comparatively low barriers to entry, and there might only be a single patent or two that's preventing uh, entry into that market. So if you take an industry like pharmaceuticals, and, and again, I'm generalizing here, it's not the case that every drug satisfies these conditions. You really might have the case where knocking out a single patent takes something that previously only one provider could sell and effectively puts it in the public domain. So now you have seven or eight competitors who can effectively uh, compete in that market. Assuming that we are in a market where a patent confers monopoly power and a victory in a patent dispute is likely to lead to a reduction in monopoly profits, how does the timeliness of a patent challenge relate to its effect on competition? I think this is one of the one of the more important points that's been overlooked here because people tend to imagine the patent challenger as this potential entrant who's going to come in, prevail on a patent challenge, and really change the market in a forward-going way. Um, I think that's uh, often adopted from economic models where a sort of time is stopped and you're just sort of imagining that this legal process is going to happen uh, in, a, in a heartbeat. Uh, lawyers know that patent litigation takes years or decades. And uh, I think everyone appreciates that, that patents are limited time grants, so they have a natural expiration date. So uh, if patent litigation drags on for too long, there might not be any forward-going market power at issue by the time the case is actually resolved. Um, there's a couple examples of famous cases that went on for decades after the underlying uh, patents had expired. Now, you might wonder, why would the parties keep bothering to fight over patent rights that have long expired? And the answer is damages. Uh, patent litigation is not uh, entirely, or even necessarily predominantly, about forward-going value, which is kind of what people have focused on when they've assumed that patent challenges increase competition. A lot of patent litigation involves damages for past infringement. And so uh, parties can have a private interest, millions of dollars or, 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 or and up, uh, over the damages for conduct that happened a long time ago without the underlying rights necessarily having any technological or legal significance for the public in the future. Great. What is the best example where the courts and legislature have successfully incentivized litigation that has led to an increase in competition? 
the 1984 Hatch-Waxman Act that I mentioned a while ago um, has some features of it that make it extremely likely to lead to the right kinds of challenges. And by that I mean challenges that, that fit this theory that are likely to, to increase competition in a forward-going way. Um, that's because, uh, as you may or may not know, you can't just start making prescription drugs and selling them out of the trunk of your car. Um, you can. You'll go to jail. Uh, to do it legally, you need to get FDA approval. So the FDA regulates entry on the front end, and patents really do operate as this a, a very powerful kind of on-off switch. Um, they're very closely tied to specific products that, that a consumer might uh, might actually recognize on a store shelf or a pharmacist might dispense. Uh, in other industries, the connection's um, not so great. Um, oftentimes, you do have... Uh, uh, infringement begin and go on for years before it's detected and even in further further time before a judgment can be entered. And so this prospective entry model that fits very nicely in the case of uh, pharmaceutical litigation, Hatch-Waxman challenges, uh, doesn't apply in other industries. The other thing that's really nice about the Hatch-Waxman mechanism is um, the bounty I mentioned before is a grant of dual exclusivity by the challenger and the former patent holder. Why does that matter? Well, it means that the value of this incentive to challenge patents naturally goes up and down with the market significance of the drug at issue. So if the technology is outdated, and we're talking about a drug that has been discovered to be unsafe, say, and has been taken off the market, or it's been replaced by something that's, uh, that's, that's more effective or preferable in some way, the private incentives to challenge that patent under Hatch-Waxman naturally reduce, uh, as do the public interest in having that technology put in the public domain. So it kind of nicely tracks in a predictable way. It causes the private uh, incentives to challenge a patent uh, to follow those uh, of the public interest in competition. Great. In the alternative, where have courts and legislators pushed for litigation without the likelihood of increasing competition? Yeah, I think some of the, the riskiest proposals are so far, so far still in, in law review articles. A lot of people have seen the success of Hatch-Waxman and said, why don't we have this in other areas? Uh, and one of the, the, the arguments in this article is we need to be cautious about doing that, that there's a lot of characteristics that are peculiar to the Hatch-Waxman context that have made it successful, but that don't necessarily translate um, to other areas. Um, a recent case... And in the Hatch-Waxman context was FTC versus Actavis, uh, in which the court, uh, extremely recently, this is a 2013 case, uh, opened the door to antitrust liability for the act of settling a patent challenge. Um, I can go into the case, and it, there's a lot more details of the case, but that's the, the high-level overview. And um, this generated a lot of excitement because... Um, there's, uh, you can imagine similar arguments applying to patent settlement generally. Why would we ever want patent cases to go away? Uh, and I think that this one important consequence of this analysis is that we really need to be careful about anything that we take from the Hatch-Waxman context and try to put in other places. Just the market conditions are different uh, and the technologies are very different once we get outside that rather peculiar domain of FDA-regulated pharmaceuticals. Okay, so you mentioned earlier that there was other reasons than increasing competition to induce litigation in patents. Do you want to go into those? There's other potential arguments, and um, they haven't been developed with a lot of specificity, but I'll just give a few examples of what they might be. Um, so one possibility is that it's just important to get patent cases decided accurately, that errors in either direction uh, 
might reduce the public benefits to having a patent system. Um, you can think about this, I mean, the patent system is, under the predominant theory, a reward system. You're giving people a kind of prize, this thing of value, in exchange for having uh, created something that satisfies the requirements of patentability. And if you do that sort of sloppily, you might think that you're not very effectively rewarding invention. So uh, a distinct theory from this uh, argument that we can reduce the cost of the patent system by increasing competition is that maybe it's just better to get patent cases decided more accurately and more litigation means more scrutiny and that ultimately is going to lead to to greater uh, incentives to invent. Um, I actually explore that argument uh, in a subsequent uh, article that it's actually going to be coming out uh, this year. Um, but I think that there's a couple reasons why it's difficult to bring that home uh, as necessarily as a justification um, for more patent challenges. Uh, at least there's a few other conditions that have to be developed. And then there's other arguments we might make about just the value of litigation in general. Um, maybe we just want to have more case law developed. Maybe we think it's valuable for members of the public to stop what they're doing for a few weeks and participate as citizens in a jury trial. The problem with these those arguments, and this is actually what motivated the article to begin with, is that in general we think settlement is a good thing. These arguments prove too much because you could say the same thing about any case. Why don't we have property disputes go to trials all the time? Why don't we have other cases? Um, that, why don't we discourage settlement in other contexts? The truth is that we don't. We have a long-standing policy in this country that's reflected in case law and in the rules of civil procedure of encouraging settlement, trying to get uh, parties to resolve their disputes without going all the way to trial. Patent law is just this weird outlier. Uh, of all these kinds of cases that you might think benefit the public, patent law is the one that the courts have singled out and said something special is going on here. So to justify that, we need to find something that's unique to patent cases, and that's one of the theories I'm trying to explore in this article. All right, Professor, I'm giving you the mic. What do we need to know? Now, I guess I'll respond to one thing that you said at the very beginning, which is that there, you thought that the first question was going to be a toss-up question. I, I assume you meant by that it would be like an easy question. They're just sort of, um, there's no question like that in patent law. Essentially, um, what makes this such an interesting area is almost any doctrine, however, how, or any principle, how simple and straightforward it might seem, once you scratch below the surface, it's actually really complicated. Uh, and so uh, I wouldn't take anything that you've ever been told or heard about the patent system for granted. Uh, ask these questions and you'll find that, that there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of skeletons hiding in patent law's closet, basically. I'd like to once again thank Professor Stephen Yelderman for joining me on a pint of law. Up next, we will have Andres Felipe Lopez, who is a JSD candidate in international human rights here at Notre Dame. We will be discussing his upcoming publication on the role of business in post-conflict Colombia. So thank you again, and we should have it out Thursday or Friday. <laughs>